Welcome to the True Sight Podcast by Oracle's Elixir, your source for in-depth analytical coverage of professional League of Legends and the rest of the esports world. I'm Tim Magic Sevenhusen. Today we're talking to the general manager of FlyQuest League of Legends, Nick Fan. Thanks for joining me, Nick. How have you been? Uh, I'm good, man. Uh, just got back uh, about a week ago from today. Um, just recovering my sleep schedule so that I can get into the the groove of the off season. Yeah, I complain a little bit about you know having to shift my sleep schedule so that I can watch Worlds, but I didn't have to like have literal jet lag. And you actually traveled there. You're one of the few actually with the team, right? That that was yeah, yeah. I, th- I think a lot of teams had faced some visa issues coming into this event. I think it was spun up pretty quickly. So. Shouts out to Riot for, you know, at least being able to to get people out there to put on a live show. Um, but yeah, we were we were relatively undermanned, but I think we came out pretty okay, in spite of all that. Yeah, and you had a, a limited number of people you were actually allowed to bring, regardless, right? Uh, yes. I I don't know if I can disclose the exact amount of people, but we were uh, limited to some degree. Yeah, I know all the teams had people working remotely, you know, some staff mm-hmm. that if there were no limits, you definitely would have expected all their staff to be there. And some of them had to work remote, things like that. So, exactly. yeah, I mean, definitely good to get as many bodies there as you could and, and hopefully the right ones, too. Um, yep. you know, I'm sure it was some hard choices between how much do we send a content team between pure competitive, you know, balancing. The yeah, because you're, you're not necessarily sure how much you're actually going to be able to capture. Um, obviously, this is, you know, groundbreaking for our organization to be able to attend Worlds for the first time. And so. Um, you know, a lot of special things there and, and, and it was tough to not be able to bring, you know, all the, all the different contributors, but hopefully next year, yeah, make the best of what you can. Yeah. When you go there next year and hopefully it'll be, you know, much easier circumstances and you guys will definitely be there once again. So yeah, (laughs) good learning experience. Uh, so let's, let's jump into some, some discussion, you know, we've had some different people on the show over the past month or so. Mm. Uh, we actually had somebody else from, from your org last week. We had Cy, uh, one of the analysts from your org. So, you know, I think it'd be really interesting getting a, a, a thought on some thoughts on the year and an angle on things from a different level of the organization. Uh, but before we kind of really jump into those details, I think it'd be great for people to, to get a bit of a background on, on kind of who you are, how you got your start in esports, and, and, you know, how, what led you to become the general manager for FlyQuest? Sure. Uh, I've, I've been in esports now for about five years. I think before getting into esports, I was working in uh, finance, mostly on the wealth management investment sector. Um, you know, slowly made my way into esports. I think I got my first start at Team Liquid. Um, appreciative to them for the start. Um, transitioned in the competitive side of things. And I, after about a year and a half, I moved over to Immortals. And in 2017, that's when we made our Worlds run that summer with uh, bringing an Xmithian song to the roster. Um, and and after we found out that we weren't going to have the franchise spot, uh, you know, transition over to FlyQuest, and we've we've been building this thing for three years now. When you uh, moved from Immortals to FlyQuest, was that straight into the GM role? Uh, yeah, it, it was a role that I had already occupied on Immortals. It was a role I also already occupied on Team Liquid, so... Um, it was a pretty smooth transition. It was pretty lateral. Um, and we've been kind of doing the same thing. Uh, just, you know, just trying to build uh, our, our foundation and, and, and making sure we can stay as competitive as possible. How much of, of your kind of job description gets balanced between, you know, the competitive side and things like, like building the roster and, and managing the, the coaching and analytical staff and things like that versus working more towards the business side and the brand and, and, and those elements? I, I think I'm lucky to be working with a 
really strong team of professionals right now. Um, our CEO, Trisha, is someone I've worked with for, you know, close to four years now. We we both met each other at Immortals, and at that time, she was the head of partnership and sales, and, and I had come in as the general manager. I think Noah really empowered a lot of us to uh, not only wear different hats, but really to, to have accountability and responsibility for the direction of the company. Um, and so at that time in Immortals, I, I think my, my job description and my role was a lot more split between the two. I had my hands in a lot of different things. Uh, when we transitioned over to FlyQuest, I, I got to uh, dedicate a lot more time to the competitive side of things. Cool. So yeah, so at this point, then you're, you're mostly working on the competitive side in New York? Yeah, that is correct. Cool. Uh, in, in some of the things you've done before esports, you know, mentioned kind of wealth management, investing types type mm. things. What are mm. some of the, the skill sets or, or the experience of this from that that have proven most valuable in working as a GM? Uh, I would say just having competent work experience in general. I think like when you when you see the, I think a lot of people will compare where esports is at now to where it was even five, six years ago. Um, a lot of the work traits that you develop over time, just working, you know, different jobs and, and having different titles, you learn, you know, basic business acumen, you learn basic organizational skills that uh, honestly transitionally help a lot in esports. Being able to stay organized, being able to follow up, being able to, you know, send emails correctly <laughs> are, are just some of the, the small foundational things that i think you know was missing for a long time in esports and as things are more and more organized um you know you're starting to see you know that expectation be a lot larger than just being passionate about esports i I laugh because uh as as i'm sure you're very well aware and I've, i've shared this anecdote before but you know getting answers to emails or other forms of communication in esports can be it would surprise a lot of people uh, you know, having worked yeah. in different capacities myself in, in the esports world, you know, and, and some on kind of a sales type side, especially mm-hmm. uh, just like general relationship building with coaches and with management and so on. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the people that I end up having on the show are people that have been good at communicating with me in the past <laughs> because I could actually, you know, get them to answer when I when I invite them. And, and you know, you're one of those people. But yeah. a lot of others, man, oh, man, is it hard to get an answer to an email? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we were talking through Twitter. I, I, I would say most of my time spent on Twitter is probably looking at, you know, posts from sports and, and, and things like that. But uh, DMs is not something that I usually will spend a lot of time on unless it's like really, really urgent. I'm also one of those guys that hates notifications on my phone. So mm-hmm. anytime I see, you know, the little red blink up on my iPhone, I'll usually kind of click through to make sure that whatever needs to be addressed is addressed. And you know, I, I kind of poke fun at some of the basic skills that you need to have in esports, but you know that communication and, and that relation building uh, that you mentioned is really one of the strongest points of, I think, what makes me uh, at least proficient at my job. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, when you're going through the ringer in wealth management, uh, a lot of time you're trying to identify fits, right? I, I think you know when I'm when I'm helping people, you know, convert and transition their portfolios over to you know, my team, it's it's not necessarily about, you know, how much money I've made over the past year, how much experience. Uh, some people are just looking for people that they can trust. And at the end of the day, that, that really becomes my MO in terms of team building. Obviously, you have to have a certain level of competency as a player. You have a certain level of competency as an analyst, as a, as, as a coach, as a manager. Uh, but really what I look for is 
can you fit in my system? Can you communicate properly? Can you actually work with me beyond the expectations of a nine to five? I need people that I can count on. And, and, and a lot of that is like, you have to deep dive into character and, and there's ways to do that, but it requires more than one interview, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So let's move into discussion of kind of the actual competitive year and, and the way things went for FlyQuest this year. So going back to kind of the start of the season or really preseason, I guess, I guess about a year ago, uh, when you're putting together the roster for 2020, you know, you had a lot of the roster in place, you made some changes. How did that roster really come together? What's the story of how you ended up with these five players? Yeah, it was it was interesting. I think in 2018, we learned a lot. I think that was the year that everybody first entered franchising. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the biggest lessons that we learned is culture matters so much more than anything else. Um, it's something that I kind of already knew. I, I was an athlete back in the day. I was a summer professional swimmer. Um, and, and while swimming is not necessarily the same kind of team sport that you would expect of basketball or football or traditionally, you know, baseball, soccer. Um, there's still elements to it where you're practicing against your peers and with your peers and, and culture in being able to compete alongside people is, is actually really important. And so while a lot of teams um, were very, very focused and, and maybe tunnel visioned on high class imports, um, you know, there's a, there's a strong reliability on veteranship and, and being able to, to pull reliable stats and, and, and winning. Um, it, we, we realized in, in our roster composition in 2018 that we needed to find people that could be complementary to each other more than just, is this guy talented? Um, that seems really, really basic, but when you're funneled into a vacuum of, you know, these are the X amount of players that are free agents or these are the players that are available, uh, being able to identify that competency and being able to identify that uh, synergy is actually quite difficult. You don't get the luxury of seeing how these players play on a field or a court like you do in traditional sports. You don't get to hear that communication. A lot of times you're going in blind. Part of that could be you know an issue with scouting. Um, but ultimately, I think you know because a lot of things are done behind closed doors, uh, you don't always get to evaluate as properly as you'd like. So, so yeah, so I how think, do you work yeah. around that? Um, well, ultimately, it's a lot of conversation. It mm-hmm. is a lot of conversation. I, I think we've we've flirted with Power of Evil, for example, for for years. I think there's been a lot of off seasons where he's been available. We've had interviews. We kind of get to know him over the course of years. I've, I've asked him over the course of two, three years now what his years have become. You know, it's his time on Optic, his time on CLG, his time on Misfits. Um, and when we took the time to really understand his growth, some of the growing pains of, of transitioning from Europe to, to North America, um, we realized in 2020, I think he as well, we realized that this was just the right fit for us going into 2020, this was just the right fit for us. There was a certain level of leadership that we knew that Tristan was going to bring. Um, there's a certain level of veteranship that we knew was going to really satisfy and complement the roster that we had with Wild Turtle and with Santorin, and uh, it just made sense for us. Uh, but but that takes time, right? That's not something you can decipher all the time in one off-season. Um, 
I, I think that's a very roundabout way of answering your question of how do you work around some of those those issues. But it, it really just took time, and it really takes conversation. If you're not interacting with people, you know, often, and you're not, you know, taking advantage of the moments that you get with players and with staff, I think you lose out a lot on kind of the intangible moments that that really set those things apart. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so <clears throat> Power of Evil, I'd, I'd say, was probably the the biggest move you made. Uh, Ignar came in in this most recent offseason, right? He, you had him just for the one year? Uh, yeah, I think... So So we had been talking to him at the end of 2019. Um, at that time, he had already signed with Schalke when, when uh, we were first interested in him. And so we came back to the table and... I think when we were looking at Power of Evil and we were looking at Ignar, I think the, the pre-existing synergy was already there. They had obviously not played with each other for a couple of years, but the risk and, and, and what I banked on was that, you know, when you guys come back together, there'll be a lot of, you know, things that you can work on, but that inherent synergy won't be lost. So you say he had already signed with Shaka when you talked to him. Tell, tell me the story of that. How did that work out? Uh, it was 2019, and I think he, at that time, was kind of late to signing uh, during the offseason, but he had an agent that was representing him in Europe at, at, at some point. And by the time they reached out to us for uh, you know, identifying whether Ignar was going to be a good fit. I actually misspoke. By the time they, they came to us and, and, and talked about whether Ignar could be a good fit for us, it was already so late in the offseason that we had already settled on a direction. Um, so you're and, saying going then, into 2019? Going into 2019, not I at see, the end of 2019. This was, okay. this was the offseason gotcha. at the end of 2018. I, I so, was thinking we had a much more interesting story going here. Then. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, Tim over at Shock, the the CEO or managing director at at, at Shock, has always been a really class act for a lot of players. I think when he and players know that they're not going to be able to, you know, immediately re up or, or find significance, uh, you know, in terms of you know moving forward together, he he gives a lot of players freedom to, uh, you know, explore their opportunities so that they're not trapped in the you know the hustle of of the free agency window so you wanted you were interested or at least you were taking a hard look at him going into 2019 that didn't work out because the timing windows you came back to him for 2020 and, and this time you were able to make it work yeah cool so when then you had that five right and i think a lot of people look at <clears throat> and, and i guess it was a little different right it was a little different at the start of the year because at that point you weren't running a solo uh, it's something else going on that there were some ups and downs. So how good did you feel about the five you had going into spring? Honestly, we felt great. I know, I know every year people don't think much of, of FlyQuest or, or, or probably what we're capable of as a roster. Um, last year when we had, you know, Poe Belter plus JJ on the starting roster, uh, everyone had predicted that we would be eighth, ninth, 10th. And in that spring, at least, we were able to come in fourth, uh, beating Golden Guardians in the quarterfinals and then losing to, to Team Liquid. Um, coming into this season, it was kind of not that different. Once we had signed Power of Evil, once we had signed Ignar, and, and with our already roster of Santorin and, and, and Wild Turtle, the, the word that we most commonly saw in social media threads was, ah, it's a team of a lot of washed players. And a lot of people predicted us to finish anywhere between seventh and tenth again. 
Um, but but we kind of knew intrinsically for teams to be really successful at the start of seasons, it, it really comes down to whether you can identify uh, you know, your team's synergy, play style, and identity. When you can do that, I think a lot of the early wins come naturally because at that time, a lot of teams are going through the growing pains of figuring out what their win conditions are, what their strengths and weaknesses are. And we kind of already had that at the offset. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, do you give me any credit for power ranking you sixth going into spring? Sam, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you only because that is that is one place beyond where most analysts had us listed. So I'll give you credit for it for sure. It it is always interesting to look back at those things, like right, like after you see the results, and then you look back. What did I think beforehand? What actually happened, and what do I think now? Right, <laughs> and that's one where there were definitely some things that were very different going into spring. You know, expectations versus realities. Everybody thought yeah. some liquid was going to be you know just maintaining, and everything blew up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think anybody expected Cloud9 to dominate the way they did. And a team like yours, I think, got less credit for the changes you had made than you actually deserved. Like, I, I was really high on the Ignar signing. I thought Power of Evil was, at worst, a lateral move and turned out to be, you know, a really nice forward movement there. Uh, and it was great to see kind of the, that that there were some some really good things happening in the way you, you guys were building out. But, of course, things things weren't entirely clicking, right? Uh there were some ups and downs in that split. Yeah, I think when we when we first started, so so at the start, we we just like a lot of teams that were importing players, we faced a lot of, you know, the stagnation of, of the visa process. We really didn't get to practice until like three days before the start of the season as a full roster. I think our when we actually did start scrimming initially, we had triple playing for us uh, on the main roster. Uh, with JJ and then Ignar comes in a little later and then Power of Evil finally arrives the Tuesday before you know week one starts for spring um, gives us only a few days to work but I, I, I thought ultimately our, our players in Wild Turtle our players in Santorin knew how to make it work with these guys I mean it was, it was a team of you know veterans plus Viper and uh, our guys just knew how to win games at that point um, now you fast forward a few weeks into the split, and I think there was a pivotal moment for our roster. I think it was a game against Team Liquid, where we had Viper on the Mordekaiser top side. And without going into it too much, I think that was a game where uh, he had made a play on double lift at a Herald timer, or prior to a Herald timer, and following that mishap, I think he lost a lot of confidence in, in himself as a player, and. When we were targeting development for, for Viper in, in the coming couple weeks, uh, I think finding ways to inject more confidence in, into him, uh, structuring a game plan around him, we, we, we had something planned. I think we had a lot more one-on-one time geared towards him. Uh, David Lim and Curry did a great job with that, but ultimately he, he was having a hard time finding his footing. At that time, I was already in motion uh, you know, to one, help out our academy side by giving them some veteran leadership by adding Solo to the roster. So I just want to, you know, dispel any any ideas that that was just like a nominal thing. We actually did intend for Solo to be on the roster as the assistant coach for our academy side, um, you know, before, you know, about week six or week seven, I kind of made the hard decision to, you know, let's, let's try something out and let's throw Solo in to see where he stands. Uh, 
but 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 well before then you know we we had a plan to work with viper we were really excited about his development from you know the 2019 season he had his ups and downs but we were really excited for where he could be uh and i think once he lost his confidence it was really hard for him to bring that back and you know as a result i mean rosters aren't going to typically wait for those things i think it's it's something where you have to have an alternative plan we had thrown him into the into the ring a little bit had him play some academy had him also sit with us in on the lcs side just absorb games be part of that and contribute um but as soon as, as soon as solo came in i think his understanding of how to play the game his understanding of how to be effective as a weak side player um just really elevated the floor of our play and i think that's what you guys saw through spring playoffs yeah and so you finished you finished up spring running through playoffs making it to finals which I believe was the first finals the org had ever achieved. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, yeah. that is correct. So, you know, that was, in, in a lot of pers- perspectives, that was, you know, you could call it an overachievement, you could call it a big surprise, but you guys made the finals and nothing can take away from that, whether or not, you know, you expected that to happen or, or thought that maybe things could have worked out differently. You make the finals, right? You make a really tough late season roster change, you run it through, uh, and that's a big deal. Uh you know, to to call back to the Viper situation a little more, and I don't want to kind of belabor that that story too much because I think it's a thing that has been discussed a lot. I know we've talked about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've talked about it with with this community, you know, at other times. But as a GM who values the relationships and being able to build something together and, and kind of create some camaraderie and all that, I, I imagine that kind of thing must be really really difficult to deal with. Hey, I got to do what's best for the team, and sometimes that's not what might feel best for the individual player. Yeah, I, I think we were really lucky to be, I think, with a team of veterans that understood at different points in their careers their own growing pains. I mean, Wild Turtle, once once leaving TSM, you know, we, we hadn't found success in a couple of years here at FlyQuest, and this was kind of the, you know, this 2020 was supposed to be like the year we found that. Santorin had just come off of, you know, being dropped from H2K in 2018, uh, Power of Evil had come over to NA without finding much success. Ignar, after leaving Misfits in 2017, bounced around to a different teams like Barbecue, like Schalke. Um, and, and no one ever really found the success that they wanted or needed, despite you know their best efforts, despite all-inning, despite you know incredible work ethic. All of those things doesn't always lead to you know the results that you want. And I think these guys knew it. They saw how hard Viper had been working. They saw how much time he had been putting in solo queue. Um, how much time he was spending with coaches. And I think it was tough for everyone to say, you know what, I think we agree it's probably the right decision to move in another direction at this time, give him a little space to, to regain confidence. But, you know, we still have a job to do. Um, and, and that's kind of the maturity of our roster in a sense is is, is we all realized we had a job to do and, and Solo was just available at the right time for us. So then coming into summer, uh, and since we've already mentioned it for spring, you know, I powered you guys fifth coming into summer, which may feel a little harsh having made the finals, uh, especially in retrospect when, <laughs> when you came mm-hmm. through and did the same thing in summer, but <laughs> you know, you had these, these, these five players, uh, did you, did the, the, the off season break and coming into summer, like, did that really change your expectations? Were you coming in saying we made the finals once, Hey, we got to go to worlds or was it still, you know, were you still holding any reservations on that? You know, at the start of our season, our goal was to make worlds. 
you know, I, I sat down with Ryan, uh, our president, uh, at the start of kind of our off-season planning in 2019. And the only thing that we really, really wanted to make sure happened this year was was to make Worlds. I think this was the year that, you know, we make or break. You know, we've, we've had such commitment from Santorin and from Wild Turtle for such a long time. And, and this was the year we really needed to make something happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, at our very core, we believed in all of it. Santorin and, and, and Jason were part of, uh, were as much part of team building as I would say coaches are. Uh, I, I personally believe that to have the right system and to have the right culture, everybody has to buy in. And so, you know, even from, you know, picking players and, and having conversations, it was important to me that Santorin and, and, and Wild Turtle had conversations with Power Vival and had conversations with Ignar to know who their teammates were walking into the 2020 season. And so I felt really comfortable at all of that. I think all the players were really excited. They had really good conversations going into the uh, off-season, exiting off-season. We were just really, really, really excited and, and, and really confident that Worlds was going to be uh, just just that, that was the result that we were going to have at the end of the year. Um, it didn't matter how hard it was going to be to get there. We just already knew and we had already manifested for ourselves that that was going to be what happened. And so going into spring, you know, finishing second, I think we knew that in some ways we were outclassed by Cloud9, but something we learned playing Cloud9 was honestly like these guys just take fights on so many windows, even when it's relatively illegal for them to do so. Mm-hmm. And if we can just, you know, decide to, you know, in a sense, nut up and just take fights, let's let's limit test a little bit. Let's see what we can get away with as well. Let's see, you know, are these actually bad timers for them? Are these good timers for us? And 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 given that we were just such a good scrappy team, we knew how to take fights, we knew how to engage. Um, that was the mentality that we came into summer with. And so you know, I also know that people ranked us, you know, lower than second. People ranked EG above us. People ranked, you know, all these different teams above us. We didn't, we didn't really pay too much attention to that. We, we just knew what our mission was and we knew what our expectation was for ourselves and, and where we just finished. And so um, knowing that summer was going to be fully remote, uh, we knew there was going to be some issues. We knew there were going to be some growing pains, but ultimately that never really changed, you know, our vision. Yeah, and I'm sure to some extent having the level of veterancy and the level of experience and maturity in your roster going into a fully remote season was probably a plus for you guys compared to rosters that might have had uh, more youth in them, more inexperience. And, you know, I think that you can look that either way, though, right? Because sometimes playing from home uh, might feel more comfortable than playing on stage and maybe being a rookie benefits from that as well. Did you guys think about that at all or did you just say, hey, it is what it is. Let's just do what we have to do. Yeah, I think, you know, we have some players that much prefer playing at the office. I think Solo and Wild Turtle specifically are dudes that really thrive in, in a, you know, I want to say cleaner, but probably more organized structure probably is, is the better word for it. A more organized structure. They come into the office. They have a routine. Um, you know, I'm sure you know guys like that yourself, guys that either thrive or suffer when they go into college, right? You you have a little less structure than you did in high school. Um, you know, I'd say Solo and, and Wild Turtle really thrived in having a little more structure to their lives. Um, Pio and Ignar come from, you know, Europe and Korea, where the team house model is still widely in effect, uh, more so than in North America. And so kind of the intimacy that a team house environment gives, they were, they were definitely really happy with that. And so um, it, it was interesting. Solo lived remote. Wild Turtle live remote in the summer. 
Uh, and then, you know, the core of Ignar, Power of Evil, and Santorin, they were all living in the team house. So it, it actually kind of, you know, benefited everybody in a sense. I wouldn't say that there weren't, you know, without cons, but, you know, the, the, the upside was that everybody felt comfortable being in the arrangement that they were for Summer Split. Cool. So, <clears throat> you know, we, we know the story from there. You guys make it back to the finals. Uh, mm -hmm. You go to Worlds. Uh, you know, NA doesn't do that great at Worlds, but you pick up some wins. You know, I think at the end of the day, uh, if TSM goes 3-3, goes three, three, NA feels pretty happy, right? Uh, so leave TSM out of it. FlyQuest, Team Liquid, both can feel like they played around expectations, I, I think, and picked up some pretty impressive wins. Obviously, you want to qualify through. You're not going to be satisfied. You're not going to be happy, but mm -hmm. you're not going home like, hey, we achieved nothing, right? You've, you've got some you've got some notches on your on your gun hill to bring home with you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think the target for next year is to really, you know, I think a lot of the intention behind practice for next year is going to be really to, to hone in on the things that we realized and noticed from scrimming and playing on stage against some of these international teams, I think, you know, I don't need to go into it because I think that that dialogue is 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 overkilled on on social media at this point. But just the pace at which these teams play, the organization with which they solve the game, um, their ability to snowball, their ability to understand how to get back into games, it's just at a heightened level. And so when you play against those kinds of teams and those kinds of players, you really have to isolate and dissect like everything that we're doing. Uh, not necessarily just to call out everything we're doing wrong, but to really minimize and, and maximize how we decision make in, in games. Like sometimes teams will fall so far behind that they feel like they have to fight over every objective when really, you know, you, you have to be able to keep composure in a game and, and, and acknowledge what you need to give up and, and what you need to fight over. And when you're caught in the pace of a game, it's easier to feel pressured to make something happen rather than sit back and just like, guys, let's just scale. You know, we'll fight in like five minutes when when fourth dragons up, and and, and we'll yeah. go in that direction. Um, the game slowed down for us, I think, in week two. Uh, I think we really identified some of the things that had been plaguing us in week one. Um, we had also been not performing super great week one. I know a lot of people will try to pin, you know, a lot of things on solo, for instance, but people have to remember like solo started off playing his career kind of late and 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 solo this is his first time on the international stage and i think he actually came out really well in week two um but you know to, to go back to it three three i think you got to be happy for it as an na fan to, to some degree you're we're playing against the best team in china in top esports you're playing against drx but i will tell you just just as it has been kind of the entire year with everyone's expectations being you know, obviously lower than where we expect things to be. We actually came into this group thinking that we were going to be second. We, we looked at DRX and we were like, okay, this is a team that has clear strengths, but this is a team that has strengths that like actually are, are, are exploitable. We have team strengths as well that we think we can actually take the fight to them. Uh, we felt the same way about top. We felt like we could steal a game off of them. Um, we felt like the group as a whole was easier to prep for than, than other groups. There are just a lot of factors that we looked at in this group, and we were like, second place is actually so much more attainable than everyone would ever give us credit for. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like, I, I definitely agree with that. To be honest, going into this group, when I first saw the initial group draw, I saw Top Esports. I thought, oh, DRX, you know, second place in LCK, and my gut feeling was, oh, no way, a terrible group. And then the more I thought about it, the more and the more I watched of DRX, I think 
you know, I've said this in other places, I ended up having a little bit too low of an, an opinion of DRX, and they overperformed my my low opinion of them, because I think I watched a few of the kind of wrong gods without balancing them with, with their strengths mm. enough. Sure, but yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. We saw weaknesses in DRX, uh, ways that they could be exploited or beat, you know, inconsistencies in them. And you look at top, and it's it's very classic LPL, right, where they they take so many risks and play with so much skill that and, and rely so much on their skill that there are always these chances that you 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 beat their skill checks, you do something smarter than they do, and you can take you know at least one game off them. Uh, and I think we we saw pretty much, you know, like one more game and you guys are through and it didn't look like you were overall severely outmatched. Uh, and, and I think that was that was really impressive to see. And, and to some extent, I, I wonder from your perspective, you know, it, it sounds like this wasn't the case, but from the outside, it can kind of seem like sometimes there's a mental block you expect to lose. And so you play in a certain way that, uh, you know, you, that that it just introduces the extra risks or vulnerabilities that if you yeah. had more confidence, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have exposed that. But it sounds like you guys kind of came in kind of not feeling that way thinking like hey second is very much within our reach yeah i mean ultimately when you when you're practicing like 90 percent of the focus in practice is going to be mechanics going to be how you feel on that day it's going to be uh the time you put in you know all the little micro things but when you get on the stage it it all becomes mental i i will say even with our expectations being it, it is absolutely attainable to get second um, once, once we had finally lost that game to DRX on, on kind of week two, um, of course, I think the, the training weights came off a little bit. I think everybody felt kind of a relief in the sense that like, oh, now we have nothing to lose. I think every team will feel that no matter how composed or how mentally trained you are, you're always going to feel that. Was it Dignar um, who had that great quote in one of the, the like the voice comments? Yeah, course? if, you if have we got nothing, nothing to lose, lose, we can't lose. Can't lose, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, it it sounded troll, but it was like absolutely correct. It's like typically like when you know you're in, you know, a position where there's no pressure and no stakes, it, it's so much easier to play free and, and, and to play your game. Yeah. Um, I don't think people will see this or recognize this as much, but our our style of play actually did change a little bit when we came into worlds, we, we started mm-hmm. focusing a little bit more around playing through bot side uh, because just looking at the teams when we were scouting them and Joseph, by the way, the, the analyst that you interviewed last week uh, did a phenomenal job with this. We, we looked at it and, and we were like bot lane seems to be kind of the most exploitable point of every single roster that we were facing in our group. I yeah. think we were looking at Jackie love and, and his support and we we're like, okay, in, in games where they, we're pushed up against a wall, ganked several times. Jackie Love comes out of lane, or maybe the first ten minutes, zero three, zero four. Uh, the game becomes a lot easier to play. It seems like he kind of will still take trades, will still play like an animal. Uh, is easier to to kind of snowball through that with DRX, Deft, and and Carrier had been kind of on a slump towards the end of their season. Um, and then Unicorns of Love, obviously, they draft really crazy with their with their mage bot lanes. And if you can get out ahead and draft. It's just easier to play the game. So so we actually adapted a little bit. I think Ignar and Wild Turtle did a great job. I think Curry did a great job, uh, and David as well, with with setting us up for that. Um, it's it's a it's a minuscule thing that people won't recognize because people are so used to us playing the 3v3 mid-jungle support skirmishing style kind of that worked all domestically. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I think it's kind of strange, you know... It, to think about the overall metaphor worlds and the fact that you guys leaning into playing through bot 
was a smart call that that bore results because you know most people coming in and, and i i contributed to this what thought you know hey playing through top lane is very much <clears throat> the overall style of the meta or at least having that option right and being able to balance mm -hmm. it and you know and i i attribute tsm's ability to play through top lane uh to one of the reasons that they were able to win the lcs but then to hear the justification that like hey we're isolated into a group with three other teams we don't have to play what's best overall in you know absent of context what's good in the meta we got to play what's going to help us beat these three teams uh and and so you know that that can be the absolute right call even if in isolation maybe people feel differently and like oh why can't they play through top playing through top is better um, yeah, that that speaks really well to to the credit of your coaching and analyst team that that you're able to identify that. Yeah, I mean something that Colin does so great, even when he's behind in in games and in lane, is that he just knows how to be effective when the real team fights matter. Not to say like, you know, starting off zero three does not matter. That that obviously impacts the early game and it impacts your ability to you know contest early objectives. But when when we get into the mid game, um. I, I don't know if you recognize this during you know our, our season, but we were honestly just the best team fighting team in, in North America. We were just the best skirmishing team. Yeah. And you know, I, I truly felt, and I think our staff truly felt this as well, that we were just world class at that. Even on the world stage against international teams, we were just world class at that. So as long as like we could get Colin to a sufficient place to where he can still make an impact on his champions, whether he's playing Orn or Renekton. We were confident that the leads that we can garner across the rest of the map, we'd we'd be able to take team fights that were advantageous. You probably take the first game against uh, top esports. We were down, I think, 10k, almost at 20 minutes, and we were still winning team fights. I, I don't know if you if you watch back, we were actually still winning team fights, going even, you know, coming out two to three on certain fights. Um, it, it's it's a mark of a good team, I think, that you can stay composed under those conditions. We just obviously have to fix some of our early game things. Um, but if, if we're if we're able to go into next year with that kind of attitude, I think we really have a strong shot at at doing something internationally. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think identifying that that solo is able to play a style where he could be way behind and still have an impact. I think that's a very fitting word choice. Yeah, <laughs> because uh, another top laner who's very good at the same thing is impact. So yeah, uh, incredible yeah, the, player. The two of those guys very similar profile in a lot of ways. So let's let's cap off the 2020 discussion here uh if you got you know if you 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 got pinned down you've got to give me an answer you're going to give me a single name who is your mvp of the 2020 season it doesn't have to be a player for what it's worth for for your team specifically <laughs> um well okay. only only limit you can't pick yourself yeah i i don't think i would even top my list in, in <laughs> any metric really um but i i think I think if we're going to go with the player, I would say the player that I feel was most necessary for our roster to function is probably Ignore. Uh, and I, I'll tell you a little bit about why. I think all of our players stepped up at different times during the season. All of our players developed in ways that really made our roster function. Uh, and, and I can go through all those things with you as well. But Ignar really glued both Santorin and Power of Evil together to give us the identity that we had in the first place. So everything that worked domestically, I think, you know, credit to Santorin being an incredible jungler, 
probably the best in in our region in terms of identifying how to optimize his pathing. Uh, Tristan, for being just incredible with any resource or any leads given to him, he knows exactly how to skirmish, how to put himself in the position to do the most damage, uh, how to acknowledge targets and fights. And, and then the reason I think Ignar is probably one of the most important pieces on our roster is because he knew how to creatively identify what timings and what windows were best for us to create those advantages as a group. Um, without him and without his ability to shot call those things in a game, I think our roster would have had a more rocky transition uh, all through the year of, you know, having our established identity at the beginning and then, and then being a successful back-to-back -back consistent uh, finals team in North America. Now, that is not to understate that I think Wild Turtle actually, for a lot of what people are calling him, you know, being a washed player and all those things, I don't think people realize how incredibly hard it is to have to be a weak side player in, in the majority of your games and the majority of the game state. To know exactly where to be and how to be efficient in a game, that, that is incredibly difficult. I don't, I don't know that there's many AD carries that have the macro understanding of the game to be able to put themselves in a position like that and still be able to succeed for the team. Um, I know he did slump in summer, and that was a team decision to give him, you know, a, a space to to recover and 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 find himself again, like he talked about in, in some of his other interviews. Um, but as soon as he came back to the roster, I think he knew exactly what to do to be able to, you know, allow our team to flourish with the style that we had. Uh, Solo, I, I mean, I, I think the best way to just categorize solos you know impact to the team is, is just being able to look at what he did for us in spring when he came in after having you know a lot of rust on his shoulders you know not having scrims uh he was just able to come in and 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 really help command team fights in a way that uh we weren't able to do with the previous iteration of our roster he also knew a good deal about lane allocation and and, and that honestly helped our team stay relatively organized with our macro through the mid game. So all of our players, I, I really truly feel like could be MVPs on other rosters, but together, um, you know, we were just able to find a winning formula. And I think Ignar was probably the skeletal backbone to all of that. So we're headed into 2021 now. I'm sure every off season yeah. has its own kind of character to it, its own challenges to work through. And, you know, you're, you're coming from a different spot. You know, you, you've come off your most successful season ever. Uh, you've got these five players, but you don't have everyone under contract going forward. What kind of changes might we see? And and I guess the the other side of that is, you know, if if you could just move forward without making any changes, is is that kind of? I assume that'd be kind of your preferred state. Yeah, I, I think I think this is obviously a hard question to to answer without really giving anybody a whole lot. I think for me, I like to kind of keep things quiet and, and kind of surprise everyone at the end and whether people think we're going to be successful or not is, is kind of left to the imagination. Um, I, I think, you know, the question people will ask us is, is, you know, what are we doing with Santorin? And ultimately, I think, you know, in, in a lot of our conversations, you know, the goal is to, you know, try to find, you know, some way or some opportunity to make it work. Obviously, he's had an incredible season and, you know, we're grateful for, you know, the two years, two and a half years now that he's given us. And, you know, we're going to do our part to, to try to figure out uh, the right situation. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I think we have a strong core and, you know, we have a strong system in place that if, you know, we have to make any changes, I think we'll be 
uh, relatively fine with those changes. Uh, ultimately, you know, every offseason does come with its own, you know, hurdles to leap over. And, and this year, importing seems like it's going to be, you know, an even bigger challenge. So even even with the, you know, oceanic situation, um, where all of those players are now counted as near North American uh, residents, I think you're still going to see, you know, some cases where, you know, these players are going to have a harder time getting into the U.S. because of just the state of all these different countries and, and, and how COVID has dictated their immigration. So when it when, uh, when it comes to, yeah. you know, re-signing Santorin specifically, how much does it just come come down to to dollars, just to, to numbers? Is that something where it, it really is just a struggle to outbid other orgs who are interested in the services? Um I think sometimes. I, I think obviously when you have a, a league with, with no salary cap, there's no collective bargaining. Um it, it really comes down to, you know, with with hotly contested free agents. Or, or soon to be free agents, you know, who can, you know, provide the most attractive package and offer. Um, with our roster, I think there's just so many things that, you know, I think, you know, Santorin has been excited about and, and comfortable with. And so I don't think it just comes to dollars. I mean, I think it's been a fit and it's been a home for so long. If you go through our content, you've seen all of these different things we've done with Lucas and, and, and for Lucas that I think the, the home and the family is there. Um, at the end of the day, you know, we'll, we'll see how off season, you know, spreads its wings and takes off. Um, but we can, we can only expect and hope that, that we can, you know, go into 2021 and, and, and still remain as competitive as ever. If you do end up in a situation where Santorin ends up with a different team, you know, for, for whatever mm-hmm. set of reasons that might be given the, the importance of having a certain dynamic in a roster, a certain overall balance of skill sets or play styles, is that the kind of thing where you look at it and start to think, maybe we do need to make one or two other changes based on who else we get in at the jungle position or or is it something where you really hope you can just kind of plug and play somebody and just find someone who fills that similar kind of a niche we're, we're kind of evaluating everything but after our world's experience i think you know all the players on our roster have identified ways that they can continue to develop and can continue to improve to take that next step uh, especially solo who's coming off his first international experience ever playing against crazy top laners like uh, like we, we've scrimmed, you know, a lot of the Chinese teams and we've scrimmed a lot of the Korean teams, being able to see the way that those players function in, in their team dynamics. Like, I, I think you're going to potentially see, hopefully solo take that next step next year. Uh, I think there's a lot of things that he learned and there's a lot of things that he even, you know, developed and improved on just between week one and week two. So, uh, for him specifically, and then kind of to, to take a step back and look at our whole roster. Um, even if we're in a position where we have to make changes, I think everybody is relatively prepared uh, to continue to level up. So uh, I'm not too worried. Uh, so you mentioned kind of the oceanic situation, imports in general. Speaking to, to kind of the, the broader global importing overall, um, mm. what are some ways that you work around kind of these uncertainties there? Are you kind of scared off it and say, hey, let's, you know, we don't even know if we're going to be able to get these guys in, period. Let's just make different plans. Or is it more of a scenario where, hey, we, it might just take longer. Maybe they don't get to join until mid-spring or even until summer, but we're willing to kind of, hey, spring doesn't really matter in the current format. Maybe it changes to 2021. Uh, you know, what, what's more the approach there? Are you just more cautious? You you put in contingencies? Or are you just trying to avoid these, these big import scenarios overall? I, I will say that ultimately, ultimately the way I view things is, the more talent that you can inject into the current system in in North America, regardless of whether that means developing your own talent in North America or or bringing some other talent 
from elsewhere. I think it, it, it all contributes to the same thing. And I think like we just need more and more talent, and more and more competitive players in, in the space that gives us a little bit of freshness. I think a lot of teams are probably tired of recycling players. And so, whereas if this happened two or three years ago, there would probably be a really big resistance to trying to find contingencies. But but at the end of the day, there's, there's just some really talented players in, in Oceania. Um, there's some players that are really, really strong in, in other minor and major regions alike that I don't think you'll deter teams from importing still. People will just have a lot more, you know, maybe creative solutions to that. I think you'll see a lot of teams start to invest in probably, you know, similar to the way 100 Thieves did their next program, similar to how TSM even had one kind of, you know, under wraps. Uh, you're going to see a lot of teams start to, you know, increase the output with some C teams and and potentially even mimic the way that, you know, some of the Chinese and, and Korean teams function with their practice squads. So uh, hopefully that answered that question. I think it's just different for every organization, um, but we'll likely try to look at some contingencies as well. Um, if, if there are, you know, extraneous, you know, visa issues or circumstances, but we're excited for, for what the influx of talent could potentially mean for the development of this region. And I want to pick up on something you mentioned there that I think a lot of listeners might not be too familiar with. You mentioned kind of Chinese and Korean teams in their practice squad. So my understanding of that, and you can kind of correct me with, with your understanding of it if it's off base, but you know, th- these would be players that they have inside the organization, not signed to contracts that would allow them to compete for the team necessarily, but that kind of play and practice alongside with with uh, alongside your actual rosters to kind mm-hmm. of help them develop. And while those players in the practice squads are also kind of maybe they have more kind of core skill set issues to work on, but they've got a lot of promise in them, things like that. Uh, and and they're working towards maybe in the future being promoted into actual kind of competitive contracts. Is is that more or less a, an accurate description? Yeah, I'd say so personally. I think so. I think that's apt enough. I think the the question that becomes in the North American context, you know, is that something where it doesn't make doesn't make sense to to kind of build out an actual branded amateur team, as as you mentioned, kind of Hundred Thieves Next being an example of that, uh, or is it something more kind of even more unofficial, right? Just just an in house, you know, quote unquote in house scrim squad, yeah, that is not even publicly branded. I think so. I, I think we can kind of break it down in a couple ways. I think when you had the NA Worlds teams go off to to uh, to China for Worlds. You lose 15 of your top solo queue players in that sense. Not not saying that all these guys are like you know in the top 20 of the solo queue ladder, for instance, but just top players that are in the solo queue ladder in general. You lose that. Um, you have some other players that are all going off for their own off season purposes once the summer season ends, and so the player base relative to the pros that are still in north america i think that dynamic shifts right so you have a you have maybe a weaker solo queue ladder during you know that month month and a half experience uh probably extends itself to maybe two to three months depending on when teams bring back their pros um i think that ultimately where we're at is we just lack from the solo queue ladder we lack visibility there's a lot of players that that we kind of already know about and there's a lot of players that we already see on the solo queue ladder when you go to china and when you go to korea there's just a lot more players that you've never seen 
and and a lot of these teams you know in the lpl and the lck will literally just throw some of these solo queue players into their practice squads to see what they're made of i think with the branding of amateur teams in in north america i think that'll help do the single most important thing that you need for kind of a, a smaller player base is just visibility the more visibility you can get to the whole group of players that are not currently in academy or lcs systems uh, hopefully the more narratives you can run that inspires a group of players that have never really considered playing professional league of legends in north america uh, to pursue that you know if you can get even one parent that is in their early 30s to look at this and go you know what maybe you know i'll convince my niece or my nephew or you know my future child to pursue you know league of legends then you can start to develop a fast track for institutionalization for you know league of legends in general um and the more i think there's investment towards that the more visibility on all of that um as that path to pro becomes less abstract and more tangible uh i think i think na will start to develop much more rapidly from there we just have to get people excited to play League of Legends. That that really is where it is at the root. If you if you can get more people at a young age excited to start jumping in to play League of Legends, the more opportunity you'll have to really, you know, create a player base that that will continue to produce talent year after year. Yeah, and I think that's that's something I, I wholeheartedly agree with, and it's it's a big reason why. You know, I ran, you know, similar, not quite as far down the hole, but, you know, I ran Academy coverage all year on Oracle's Elixir, uh, why I've been watching a lot of amateur. We've been doing amateur VOD reviews on, on my mm -hmm. stream. Yeah, I've noticed uh, that too. <laughs> and, and, you know, trying to, you know, getting very excited about scouting grounds and trying to build some hype around that and celebrate the, celebrate the players that are going to that. And, and I, I completely agree. I think the more, the more you give the fans and the overall kind of ecosystem opportunities to, to to latch on to stories, latch on to players, find people to cheer for, uh, mm -hmm. and hope that they can, you know, earn their way into LCS, the more you kind of help to build out that ecosystem. So from kind of the content creation side, you know, trying to, trying to push that forward, um, hoping that more and more of the teams invest into that as well, uh, and try yeah. to build into the amateur scene. And, and I hope we also build out enough infrastructure to make it easier, you know, discoverability on, on these tournaments and being able to watch them and being able to find them and know when they're on and, and all of that. So, um, I think there there's good movement. There's good positive steps being taken, but there's a, there's still a long way to go there. I agree with uh, that. It's just going to take time. It's going to take kind of the attitude of our, our region as a whole to shift a little bit. Uh, but ultimately, I mean, I, I I'm not one of those people that are like we're the only team doing this or we're the only team doing that. I, I've been I've been happily surprised that a lot of teams have been investing more and more of their staff time into kind of researching the amateur space. I mean, we've been scouting since our academy season ended so that's that's since the end of august and i think you know that's still not satisfying enough to us right we we want to create something that is more sustainable more year-round than just like in between seasons or in the off season it, it's not enough to just scout for four months of the year it's something that you have to do you know routinely and and, mm -hmm. and actually have structure too so um the more teams that start to develop that uh the better honestly and, and i know that all teams have their own internal scouting systems for where they rank players and how they evaluate players uh, at the end of the day, that will start to homogenize a little bit and we'll actually start to, you know, really, you know, see more symmetrical player evaluation. I, I think you'll actually start to see, 
you know, narratives run where teams are actually all looking at the same prospect and saying, wow, this guy's incredible. Uh, you know, and, and, and I think once you start to have some of that uh, homogenization and evaluation, then when you see differentiation in, in the way that teams scout, that's where you'll start to see some of these gems pop up. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, when we're speaking about things like amateur, we're speaking about things like scouting and developing players who can, who can you know, earn their way into LCS in the future. I think that, that brings up some questions about academy teams currently and the role they currently occupy in the ecosystem and maybe the role that, that we, that, that orgs hope they'll occupy in the future. How does FlyQuest approach the academy team and kind of that role? So, you, you know, with, with some examples being, you could look at it as this is the talent development team where we put in the young unpolished players and give them reps on stage to, to grow. You could look at it as in like an in-house scrim or practice team for the LCS squad who in your entire purpose mm-hmm. as an academy team is to help the LCS team be successful. Uh, or maybe it's a 10-man roster kind of situation. What what approach does, does FlyQuest take to that? So I, I think our approach is going to have some adjustments going to 2021, but I think overall, just a good rule of thumb for a lot of teams has been to use their academy team to fit the form and function of their LCS team. So what I mean by that is like, sometimes you want to take risks on players in, in the LCS and to, to do that correctly so that you know, especially if you're competing for titles, to do that correctly, it's it's best to have players kind of in the wings in those respective roles so that your season isn't, you know, quote-unquote lost. Um, when you consider those things, for us, you know, we've, we've always liked to take maybe some gambles that other teams wouldn't take. I think, you know, someone like Fnatic people saw in Scouting Grounds come in in 2019, but he's also played, you know, two competitive splits in Academy before. There's just something we like in Fan that you know wanted made us want to take a risk in bringing him back into 2020, even with his you know already year of competitive experience. We also gave you know revenge a shot you know partway through our, our summer split in 2019. Um, you know I, I think a lot of teams try to balance your your rookies with your veterans, and you know sometimes that formula works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, it really comes down to you know, what the overarching goal for Academy should be. And, and for a large part of it, everybody's been trying to use Academy for, you know, cash cow purposes. And, and that's why Academy has looked so competitive for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I expect that to still be, you know, still a trademark in, in the way some teams build Academy. But, but if teams are going to now also expand into adding amateur teams, you could very well see, you know, the amateur and the academy teams almost work and function like 10-man rosters, and then those could seed into your LCS teams. Uh, to, to, answer clear, how we, to be clear yeah. on the comment about a cash cow, just to, to, to clarify that for anyone who's, who can't quite read between the lines there, that's that's the approach of using your academy team to get to amass the most skill possible, win a championship, and then sell those contracts and make a profit off of that, right, as opposed to developing players that you that you plan to hold on to. Or, or to promote them and then sell off the starter that you had in their place, right? Yeah, and I think there's a way to do both, obviously. I think there's a way to be competitive. I think there's a way to, you know, develop talent. And there's a way to also maximize, you know, your ability to sell. Um, but that is ambitious to do with just one squad of five players. And yeah. I think being able to expand that into an amateur team gives you the opportunity and the flexibility to, you know, develop systems you know, with some nuance to it, right? I think you can focus more of your development resources into the amateur side. With Academy, you still have some development there, but you can also target that to be more of a filler for any roles that you might be, you know, 
kind of 50 50 on in the lcs I, I think i think once you have that segmentation it becomes a lot easier to plan things out whereas if you're only running kind of the lcs plus academy programs i think it leaves a lot more room to uh kind of make mistakes while being potentially overly ambitious i will say the caveat to that is you want to make sure you're doing academy right before you jump into amateur it's not enough to just say, okay, yeah, now that everybody is doing an amateur team or now that everybody's planning on, on, on building out an amateur side to their programs, we should just do that because it's the right play. Uh, not a lot of teams are doing academy right even. And there's things that we have to fix and shore up on that end too before we say and feel comfortable with adding an amateur side because it's not just developing players that needs to happen in North America. We also have to take a true hard look at how we develop staff and infrastructure yeah. to make sure that these programs and these systems can actually function. If we can't do that, uh, honestly, my recommendation for, you know, myself and for other teams, if you, if you can't build the right academy structure and you can't, you know, properly develop your staff and coaches, it's probably better to, to try to make sure that you can do that in academy before you jump into amateur. Yeah. I've said for, for a pretty long time that I think the, the necessity <clears throat> is not only to develop the players, but to develop enough good coaches who can then feed back into the system and develop the players of the, you know, of the next round. And that was always from the moment Academy was announced, that was one of the things I was most excited about was more opportunities for coaches, you know, for coach discovery and for coach development to, to, you know, have the long-term approach on uh, having, having that staff that can, that can bring the players up rather than having players having to figure it out on their own. Uh, and I think yeah. that's, that's, yeah, that's a, that's a huge opportunity that, that I think we've definitely been seeing some good results on that. I'm being seeing more and more good coaches and good academy coaches, which is arguably even more important for, for this side of the conversation, right? Yeah. I mean, commend, commend like, like Cloud9, for example. I mean, if, if the rumors we're hearing are true with Rainover moving into the LCS head coach position, uh, then I think that speaks well to, to how Cloud9 has given opportunities to their, their academy coaches and, and just giving opportunities to players to, to branch into that direction as well. Uh, I'm certain with just the same way that a lot of people talk about recycling players in, in the academy system, in the same way, you know, I think our league is at risk of recycling coaches in a lot of ways. And, and the next step that we have to take is, is to try to provide opportunities to players that are on the brink of retirement uh, or potentially looking at other opportunities besides playing and really empower them to pursue something like analytics or something like coaching. Uh, because that's, that's going to, for me, in my perspective, that's going to be the next wave of, uh, of good coaches. And just like in any performance industry, just like in any sport, you know, give it three, four or five years and, and the next generation, and the next generation after that, they continue to get better at the ways that they solve things and the way that they, you know, see the game play out. And, you know, you just continue to level up, you know, your talent in, in the coaching side and in the player side. And, and as iron sharpens iron, hopefully we continue to develop a truly great product in North America. Awesome. So we've got a couple of listener submitted questions that I'd like to jump into here. So uh, if uh, anyone who's listening would like to submit questions in the future, at, at this point, uh, questions are open to Patreon subscribers. So you can head to patreon.com slash Oracle's Elixir. Uh, and I post the, uh, the the upcoming guests and opportunities to submit questions there. So we'd appreciate your support there if you want to get involved. Uh, <clears throat> so the first question is from uh, Chase Schweitzer. Uh, and he asked, 
what are the five primary skills or factors you look into for a player when you're building a roster? So if you're getting into baseball examples, that might be the you know exit velocity for hitters, spin rate for pitchers. You know you can't sure. get into the same physical skill set in this, but what are what are some key attributes you look at for players? Okay, so for me, I think th- this might just be because this is my mo, but I oftentimes am more willing to take a chance on players that other rosters or other teams might not be interested in in the same way. Uh, for me, I think a lot of it comes down to roster compatibility and in terms of like what we might be missing in terms of what a player can bring. Obviously, you know, players, like I said at the beginning, players have to have some sort of core competency in, in their ability to play the game in, in their mechanics. But let's let's go back to like 2018, for example, when we were you know, between spring and summer, and we, you know, eventually brought in Santorin. Santorin was coming off of a few different teams that he just did not have any success on, was removed from H2K. And at that time, we were specifically looking for someone who didn't necessarily have to be this, like, strong arm leader, but someone who knew how to communicate, knew how to articulate, and really had, you know, a collaborative way of how he wanted to play the game. When we were looking at candidates for that, because ultimately we're running into synergy issues in 2018. Um, we spoke with Santorin, and immediately the first thing that stuck out to me was just character. Like he's just a, he's just an all-around good person. And, and for me, being able to develop a player is more than just what you see in the game. It's it's also how you can work with that person out of the game. So I think character is one thing for me. I think a lot of my interviews with players and a lot of my interviews with coaches, you know, there's like several questions that I asked to tackle to understand a little bit more about a player's character. Uh, Number two, how they learn is actually very important to me. It it is hard to understand how a player learns until you actually have a chance to work with them. Um, But there's several coaches in the scene who have their own ideas of how players learn. And for me, um, it extends beyond whether someone is like an auditory learner or a visual learner, those kind of things. Um, Is this someone who spends a lot of time watching VODs to learn? How many VODs does it take for a player to learn a certain concept? Does this player learn by, you know, just grinding out solo queue games? Is this someone who learns more in scrims by limit testing? Is this someone who learns and functions well just by having the chance to talk to his peers after scrims? We we, we have to identify a lot of those things because at the end of the day, that adds up to culture. You can't necessarily bring in a really quiet player that only really learns well uh, off of, you know, just limit testing and scrims if the rest of the team is a team that, like, functions a lot off of VOD review and, and being able to like peer review. If it's a team that really functions on a social level, it, it's hard to bring up someone like that because they have to be able to, you know, in some ways conform to that system. Uh, I think that's the beauty of having multiple coaches in a system too, because then you can cater to each individual player's needs and, and bridge that easier. But ultimately you look for some compatibility and synergy in that sense, right? Um, outside of that. So those are two things. I think third thing is probably champion pool. And, and proficiency in learning new champions. A lot of that you'll just see from solo queue, but oftentimes you just have to talk to some of the players and teammates that they've worked with, uh, some of the staff that they've worked with to really get a sense of, you know, why a player is, uh, has a hard time picking up, you know, carry champions or melee champions, for instance. Um, I, I think those are probably the three core things that I look in uh, when I when I'm scouting players. I think it's hard to name specifically five because then you get really, really into the nitty gritty. But those are probably the three most important things for me is, is character, the way they learn, 
and kind of you know how they adapt their champ pool and, and kind of limitations on 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 that. Last question we'll go into is from uh, Joshua Goodman. Uh, why does it seem that teams' play styles are so dependent on their rosters? Is it because the players aren't good enough to play multiple styles, or because it's too hard to learn other styles, or is it more of a coaching limitation with with you don't have coaches that could properly teach them to play the new styles? You know, I think without incriminating any party, I think it's it's probably a combination of both. Um, you know, I, I think that in a lot of ways, until we get a lot of players that transition into coaches, the ability to really develop a player individually, that skill is going to be lacking for a lot of coaches. And what I mean by that is like, it's it's not that you need someone to backseat game or backseat drive and tell a player what buttons to push. It's It's being able to help a player understand in micro situations or when it comes down to just raw mechanics, like help, helping a player understand how to visualize things play out. It, it's a, it's a very intangible thing that I think player to player review gets done better than probably coach to player review currently. But um, ultimately I'm going to say it's one of it is, is I think what you want to avoid doing when you bring players into a team is try to expect them to play every single style at, at the top. When you find a player that has very specific styles and very specific skill sets, what you want to do is try to find ways to empower that and then try to find ways to make sure that their weaknesses, you know, not not to just cover them up ultimately, but that it's a, it's a steady process of trying to work around those limitations. I think some players are very, very resistant to, to those kind of changes. I think, you know, sometimes you'll see carry top laners that just, you know, are not able to function when they play on tanks. Um, a lot of people gave, you know, broken blade criticism for that, which I think in some ways it's maybe not, you know, as fair, uh, but that's just one example. Um, some players are just resistant to, to learning how to play separate styles. Um, some players might just be really, really good at one style, know exactly how they want to use their resources when it comes to that. And so then the question is like, do they need to change or can you create a system around them that works? Right. I think, Power of Evil is someone who loves to play a bunch of different champions, and if anyone ever said that he only plays mages, he, he played Vayne mid against Unicorns of Love at Worlds, so, you know, I hope that dispels a little bit of, of him only playing, you know, Orianna, Syndra, Victor. Um, but when you have a player like that that's so pronounced in one style, do you really want him to change up drastically? Or, or is it better to find complementary pieces to empower his ability to continue to be successful in those ways? Um, I, I think there's a mixture of both ultimately um and i think it's just as coaches you know coaches will have to level up when more players transition into coaching because there's just going to be things that coaches cannot see that players do and you know when they're able to provide very very piece by piece feedback to players uh that they're that they're working with you'll start to see even a greater level up from that i think i'm most impressed a lot of times when i'm talking to power of evil about the way his matchups work and i'm not a coach obviously so it's it you know it's a little less important for me to have those conversations and to know but the way that he articulates how he's supposed to win certain matchups or the way that he's supposed to create advantages or what he actually needs there's a lot of players right now that cannot articulate or cannot have that conversation and let's say power of evil in, in four or five years wants to become a coach i think he'll do an incredible job at raising a mid laner that will learn how to have that skill set as well. It's just yeah, something that sure. I haven't really seen a lot in coaches right now. But I'm excited for someone like Rain over at Cloud9 because uh, he could probably do that with any jungler that he works with. 
just he's such a cerebral player and you just need more of that in coaching yeah absolutely definitely excited about that uh excited about you know what you guys are going to look like for 2021 what you're able to put together uh, and hoping you'll be able to replicate the success you had this year so nick thanks so much for joining us on the show today uh what's the best way to, for people to kind of keep track of what you're working on and and uh and, and follow you uh, you know, on on the off chance that I, I tweet about actual esports things, which you know doesn't happen all the time, but but I you know I try to stay, you know, in the loop as much as possible and and, and speak when when I really feel I need to speak. Uh, my Twitter handle is twitter.com/swaguhsaurus uh, or swagosaurus. I think you have that already on your graphic uh, or your overlay, yeah. so I appreciate. We'll throw that. that in the show notes for the for the, um, the audio show as well. You know, outside of that, you know, please join our FlyQuest Discord. Follow us on all of our FlyQuest channels. Um, a lot of times I'm actively engaging with the rest of our staff in, in, in a lot of those channels. So um, if you guys come find us there, I'm, I'm sure we'll be able to interact with you guys as much as possible. So um, that's it for me, really. I appreciate you having me on the show and, and, and really thank all the viewers that came out just to hear me talk. I'm not... Uh, yeah, I can be boring sometimes, but you know, I appreciate you guys that have been patient and, and curious for what we're working on, and, and hopefully, we can continue to make you guys proud. Yeah, I think it's been great to get uh, you know a different level of insight. Uh, somebody who works at a higher level in the org than than I think a lot of a lot of times uh, we get to hear from. So, yeah, this has been really interesting. And I also want to throw in, you know, FlyQuest had some some really sick jersey designs this year. So check out their store pick that up the the sequest jersey the the one from spring with with you know the the grass and flower designs on it there's some some great stuff there so take a look at those you can support the true site podcast at patreon.com slash oracles elixir you can subscribe on spotify google podcasts apple podcasts uh and also find uh kind of the the home site for the show at anchor.fm slash true site we'd also uh, welcome you to join the oracles elixir discord server where we we talk about lolly sports uh discuss uh content that's coming out news current events uh and and uh, a lot of gaming and definitely dig into a lot of data science there as well so uh so come hang out with us there links for all of these things and and for uh, nick's twitter handle will be in the show notes uh so look forward to having you join the community thanks to everyone thank for you, listening yeah and we'll catch you in the next episode